So we're in 1 John. I'm going to look at uh, the tail end of chapter 2 and then the first part of chapter 3, which are kind of dealing with the same subject matter. And then we're going to skip over and just look at a few verses at the beginning of chapter 5. So we're going to be a few different places in 1 John this morning. You know, I was thinking to myself, as we live our lives, think of all the benefits that we have received from generations that have come before us. Think of all the inventions. Think of all the materials. Think of all the concepts that we are beneficiaries of. So I wrote several of them down that kind of came to my mind, but I think we could come up with a pretty long list here. Uh, We didn't invent writing, but who of us has not benefited from writing? We didn't invent books. Someone else invented books. But what a gift we have to read books. We didn't invent borders. When God created the world, he didn't mark out borders. But now we have borders that keep us safe and delineate responsibilities to different people groups. We didn't invent car. I didn't invent a car. Cars have been around for a hundred and something years. But thank God to the people that invented cars. I didn't invent steel. This building is largely constructed of a steel structure. We benefit from steel objects all the time. I've actually thought, like, who who thought, like, way back in the day, hmm, maybe if I dig a really deep hole, I'll find some rocks with some orange stuff in it, and then I'll bring those up, and I'll, like, superheat them so that iron comes out, and voila, we have the invention of iron. Have you ever thought about how crazy that is, that someone actually found this stuff thousands of years ago? And we're the beneficiaries of their ingenuity. We didn't invent textiles. We didn't invent television. We didn't domesticate animals. Someone else had to do that a long time ago. We didn't invent roads or plumbing or colleges or the internet, radio, planes, bridges, money, the whole idea of a currency system. These are things we take for granted. We use them all the time. We benefit from them all the time. But we are actually indebted to generations that have come before us for their ingenuity, their sacrifices, their time, their genius, and giving us so many of these things that we use and enjoy. And the same is true of our worship. The reason why we're looking to God today and we're thanking God for his work in our lives is because we believe we're here because we benefited from someone else. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did something, he was something, he accomplished something that I could never do. Even if I tried, I would fail. Christians then rest in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And in this sense, we are highly, highly, highly dependent beings. So we're here today not to pat ourselves on the back. And not to look within to the inner you and rev it up so that we can live a successful week. But we're here to thank God for his unspeakable gift given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you brought your Bible, we're going to spend a lot of time in the word of God today exploring it. And again, tail end of chapter 2 of 1 John, right through to chapter 3, verse 10, and then I'm also going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Here's here's the big idea to kind of get us going, and it's this. Because Christ has overcome sin, Christ's disciples will overcome sin. Now, as you can imagine, 
when you're working on a sermon and you're kind of going back and forth, what words should I use? In my first draft, I had the word may. But then I'm like, no, I got to go with will. Because we're going to see that's being taught very clearly in the passage today. We are benefiting from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because his accomplishments are so titanic and dramatic and meaningful, we will overcome sin with the help of Christ. This is a huge benefit that we have as New Testament believers. I've divided this up into three sections. I hope you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're not, I would beseech you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, consider the benefits that we have received from Jesus' person and work on our behalf. We'll talk first of all about the benefit of our status. So this is the the first point, the benefit of our status. Now, when I use the word status, I'm speaking specifically about our situation with God, our condition with God, our position with God. What is God's view of me? What is the nature of my relationship with God? What's my status before God? And in chapter three, verse one, we're told this, check it out. Verses one and two, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are see it, look at it, consider it. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This is why everyone thinks you're a nut when you stand for truth. This is why they label you and belittle you and mock you. This is why the world frustrates you because this world is not our home. We're just passing through because our identity is different now that we've encountered Jesus. Our status is intricately, intimately, that's a relational word, connected to Jesus. Verse two, very soft language, beloved We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're children of God. But at the same time, the text tells us that what we will be has not yet appeared. So we could say to ourselves then, while we're not what we will be, thank God we're not what we used to be. God has redeemed us as his people. He's justified us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrifice for our sins. And we are now on a journey looking forward to the full expression of our faith. Now, theologically, we call this the doctrine of glorification, where when we get to heaven, we'll be glorified. No more sadness, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more temptation, no more mess ups, no more backsliding. That's gone. And we will be like Christ in an even fuller way than we already are. But even in the here and now, there's tremendous blessings that we have received from God. And it's part of our status. The first one we're told is that we're loved by the father. The words are interesting here. The text says, see what kind. Now, when you're 
translating from one language into another language, sometimes you lose the sense of a word because not every word in every language is exactly and 100% parallel to words in other languages. We know that if you speak more than one language or if you've ever studied other languages, sometimes you have to take a word and come up with three words to translate it or you kind of lose a little bit of the sense and you're trying to explain it to someone else in a different language. And like, I, I just can't really, there's not really a word in English that captures this thought. But here, this word, this cluster of words, see what kind in the Greek language carries with it the sense of see the otherworldly love of God. See the otherworldly love of God. It's different than anything we've experienced here, here and now, even though we've all experienced love from one another, from our parents, from family, friends, our spouses, our children, so forth. This is a different kind of love. This is an otherworldly love. And as we gaze upon the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, God wants us to have a spiritual encounter, to see, not just with our eyes, but with our spiritual being, the love that God has expressed to us through Jesus. And what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to be astonished by it. We're supposed to meditate upon it. And we're supposed to allow that love to affect our worship. Do you allow it to affect your worship and the challenges and difficulties that you experience in life? Or is this just a Sunday morning only thing? You are loved by the father as one of his children. Flowing out of that, we have the second statement, which is that we are children of the father. Now, I don't know if you've ever received an inheritance, but... If someone that you are related to dies, your parents, your grandparents, maybe a uncle that didn't have any children and you're the favorite nephew or whatever, you get an inheritance, right? And the money has to go somewhere. And you can have two different perspectives on an inheritance. You can say, well, I'm owed it. Kind of like the prodigal son. The quicker mom and dad kick the bucket, the quicker I get the money that's owed to me. So it's my money. Uh, yeah, they earned it, but it's mine. Or you can see it as the gift for which it is. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can see an inheritance as a gift. Now, which becomes more precious? That which you feel you're owed? Or that which you receive as a gift? Many years ago, when I was a young teenager... I had a very godly man enter into my life. I, I met him at the church I was in. He, he employed me. He, he'd take me out for breakfast on Saturdays. Very godly man. He kind of filled the role of a spiritual father for me at a very vulnerable time in my life. And his sons also had great spiritual impact upon me. And I, I just love this guy. I'm so thankful for his investment in my life. But, you know, we moved out of that city and, you know, life rolls on. And I hadn't seen him for about... 20 years or so, and he ended up dying seven or eight years ago. And his family called me and asked me to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. Now, I, I just thought that was one of the most precious things. And it was terrible weather. We had to drive like three hours in like an absolute whiteout. We actually were late, but they postponed starting the funeral. I got to speak at his funeral. 
was more emotional than I've probably ever been in a public speech. I didn't realize how much this man had impacted my life. But we celebrated his life, and a few months later, I get a check in the mail. And he had actually included a small sum in his inheritance for me. I hadn't seen this guy for years. He had, I think, six children, adult children. But that spoke to me about how he viewed me. I was kind of like an, an adopted son to him. And it was special because it was so surprising. It was so astonishing. I didn't even remotely cross my mind that I would benefit in any way from my relationship with him. But in the same way, that's, that's what God is like with us and even more. God doesn't owe us anything. You don't deserve anything from God. If anything, you deserve to be disinherited and pushed away. But God being rich in love has declared us to be his children. Think about that. And this should, should affect and inform the way that we live our lives with infinite gratitude to the Lord. Third, it says we know the Father, and the time word here is now. We know the Father now. We can say, I, I know God in the here and now. Oh, have you seen him? No, I haven't seen him, but I know him. Well, that doesn't make sense. I know him on a spiritual level. I know God in the here and now. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that we're waiting for more. So there's a, there's a now, but not yet tension to our relationship with God. We know him in the now. So we have everything we need to have sure faith. Faith isn't just hoping in a myth or believing in something that you know isn't true. We know him in the here and now. So we have faith. But our full encounter with Christ is yet future. We've been adopted as his children, but the full encounter we're still waiting for. Maybe, maybe a rough analogy would be if you choose to adopt a child in another country. You don't just wake up one morning, jump on a plane, fly over, and grab the kid and bring him back. You have to go through a process. You have to apply. You have to be vetted. You have to pay fees. You have to book airplane tickets, you have to travel, and, and probably this process is going to take like six months, a year, some extended period of time. But at some point, you're going to be told the child's yours. The child's yours. The adoption's complete. This child is yours. But there's still going to be a delay between the reception of that news and meeting that child face to face. God has adopted us as his children. For sure. He's paid for it with the blood of his own son. But we are now waiting for the full encounter in the eternal kingdom with God the Father. And yet, we know him in the here and now. Fourth, we've been born again. If you don't mind thumbing forward to chapter 5, in chapter 5, verse 1. It speaks of this more fully. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And by the way, this is more than mental assent. You can say, I believe that to be true, but who cares? This is more than mental assent. Biblical belief is faith. It's trust. It's relying upon. It's an encounter with. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So we're taught that we have been born again through belief in Christ. And what will happen? How do you know? You'll be transformed by it. There's going to be evidences. You're going to change. And one of the things we're going to see in ourselves is that we'll learn to love each other. There's a special bond, by the way, between God's people. When you meet someone that's a believer, and I don't know, I've known this person for like two weeks, but there's, there's something there. There's a special bond that exists between believers because together we've all been adopted. We're all sharing in the joy of being adopted by the same father. We, we, sh- we share those, that, those feelings of joy and love and satisfaction and that sense that we've been affirmed by God, not because of us, but in spite of us. We've been born from above. Spiritual death is the punishment that we receive for sin. But spiritual rebirth is the cure for spiritual death. The Bible calls us being born again. This is why in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Every one of us has been born physically, and we will either die physically and spiritually Or we'll be born physically, born again spiritually, we'll die physically, but we'll never die spiritually. This is a status worth celebrating. We have relationship with God. We've been loved by him. We're his children. We know the father. We've been adopted by him. And we have been spiritually regenerated through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the benefit of status. The second benefit we have is the benefit of transformation. So this kind of answers the question, okay, I have status. What difference does the status make? We have the benefit of transformation. You don't have to stay addicted. You don't have to stay lost. You don't have to stay hopeless. You don't have to return again and again and again to sin. If you have status with God, that necessarily leads to transformation. Now join me back in chapter three and look what it says here in verse three and following and everyone who thus hopes in him. So that's the believer purifies himself as he is pure. And then listen to these words of warning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Ultimately it's breaking, not civil law, but the law of God. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him, there is no sin. Many times Jesus is portrayed in 
public discourse as awesome because he was a great moral teacher. Like, who's the nicest person that ever lived? Oh, Jesus, you know. What, what attracts you to Jesus? Well, he was just super nice, super charitable. He was, you know, into justice. He healed people. He was sacrificial. He died young. Like, he just burned the candle at both ends for, for other people. He's just a great moral teacher. Well, Jesus indeed was a great moral teacher. But the Bible says he appeared for a reason. And his reason was to take away sins. Now, the fuller study of Scripture tells us that he's the sacrifice for our sins. He's a substitutionary atonement for our sins. He went to a cross and died for our sins. Jesus was here to accomplish something that you couldn't accomplish and I couldn't accomplish, that we were incapable of accomplishing. And then verse 6 tells us about the transformation that will come from the life of a person that's experienced that. No one who abides in him, the word abide means remains. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So let's just think a bit about the grammar here of this text. So we have the word sin, and on the end we have ing. And that's preceded by the words keeps on. So clearly we're talking about a continuous dedication to sin. The, the, the text can't be read this way. Well, if, if you're a Christian, you will never, ever sin again. I don't believe in sinless perfection this side of heaven. But if God reveals, let's say, sin A to you, and you're like, well, I've, I've, I've read the scripture, I've heard the word preached, I've experienced conviction, and I'm going to repent of that, turn that over to Christ, and I'm going to move forward in victory. That's a win. And then there's sin B. And then there's sin C. And you respond over the course of your life as God sanctifies you, makes you holy. You're responding. You're being convicted. You're obeying. You're responding. This is the mark of true faith. But the person that says, ah, Jesus died on the cross for me. And I think Pastor Chris alluded to this in his discussion this morning about the relate, you know, that, that discussion he had with a friend. Well, why, why don't you just keep sinning then? That's not biblical Christianity. You don't say, well, Jesus died for me, so I'm just going to keep lying. I'm going to keep coveting. I'm going to stay bitter. I'm going to remain stingy. To be that is to keep on sinning. And the text is very explicit. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. One of the marks of unbelief is a commitment to habitual ongoing sin. It's one of the marks of unbelief. Instead, we remain in him. Does the text not teach us that? We remain in him. We abide in him. The solution to overcoming sin is remaining in the sinless one because in him there is no sin. So if you think of, I, I know we don't want to think of this totally in a spatial sense, but if let's say Jesus is standing here, and I'm standing over here, I may be listening to him and I may be watching him, but because I'm not in him, in close proximity to him, 
I'm liable to see things that tempt me or go places that are sinful or think thoughts that, because I I have a bent towards self-rule. We call this autonomy. Two words, autos nama, self-law. I have a bent towards self-rule. But if I come over and I allow myself to be in such proximity to Christ that my actions are a reflection of my status, then I don't keep sinning. Sin goes down and down and down in my life because the righteousness of Christ, not only have I experienced that positionally, but it rubs off on me. I surrender myself to his lordship, his rule, his reign. Verse seven says of chapter three, little children, let no one deceive you. So God's people can be deceived. Apparently, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, this is another word, practices, that's continuous. Righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, that's the same as keeps on sinning, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes it a practice for sinning. You know what I love about God's word? I'll just pause here and say this. It tells us something and anticipates that we're going to resist it. Or we're going to try to do like a mental run around it. So God's just hitting us from all different angles, essentially saying the same thing over and over again until we're pushed in a corner and we have to accept it as true. So I'm reading all these words, but God is essentially saying the same thing over and over again. Look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So are there evidences to true conversion beyond, I believe the right thing? Yeah, there's evidences. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Apparently in God's mind, there's only two camps. There's no neutral territory. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother, which totally squares with Jesus' statements where he's asked, like, what's the greatest commandment? Well, loving God and then loving others. That's not like a footnote. That's not just something you get around to 10 years into your faith, or it's not something you can overlook and say, well, I don't love people, but I love God, so I'm good to go. Growth and holiness flows from a truly changed life. So we will remain in him and we'll also purify ourselves. That's talked about in this text. Instead of practicing sin, we will purify ourselves And I'm not talking about sinless perfection this side of heaven, but we'll purify ourselves. There'll be continued growth forward. We will practice righteousness. That will be a necessary expression of our righteousness. I think sometimes we're maybe a little too Canadian in our interpretation of scripture, where we are like, I don't really want to talk about myself. I don't want to... I don't want to draw attention to me. So we're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to acknowledge any of my victories. Why, why do we think that way? If you're a Christian, you should be able to say, here's five areas that I've seen God radically change me in. I have victory in this area, this area, this area, this area, this area. Now there's some other areas I need to work on. But if you are a true Christian, 
you will practice righteousness. It'll be evident in your life. And then third, this text encourages us to receive the warnings, but not just between the ears, also to evaluate ourselves. So the text says, little children, let no one deceive you. So speaking to God's church, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be duped. I don't want you to believe in a lie. Heed these warnings. And then verse 10, by this, it is evident. We should look for evidence in our lives for true change. This is different than being in proximity to Christian things. It's like, well, I'm a Christian because I'm in proximity to a church, or I'm a Christian because I'm in a Christian school, or I'm a Christian because I have Christian books in my library, or I'm holding onto a Christian Bible. But proximity to something doesn't make you that. If you're a furry little animal and you're running in circles around a rabbit cage, it doesn't mean, well, I'm in proximity to the rabbit. I'm running around the rabbit cage, so I must be a rabbit. You might be a fox. The opposite, the enemy of a rabbit. I was like, you're not a rabbit. You got orange fur. You got pointy little ears. You got a long fluffy tail. You're not a rabbit. I'm in proximity to, no, you're on the other team. Didn't Judas spend quite a bit of time with Jesus? You know, one of the saddest, saddest narratives, I think, in all of the scripture is Judas. Because Judas had the now but not yet going on all at once in terms of proximity to God. He, ha- he, he was in relationship with Jesus. One of Jesus' disciples, friends. I mean, we're talking touring with him, hearing him preach in the first person. Sermons that have probably never wound up in the word of God. He heard everything we have in the word of God, plus, 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 plus. Saw Jesus heal. Ate with Jesus. Not for a year, not for two years, for three years. With Jesus all the time. And in the end, we discover he's not the real deal. He's a fake. How sad. Is it possible that you're a Judas? You're you're in proximity to the church, the things of God, but there's not yet been a spiritual transformation that's taken place in your own life. You're like, hey, yeah, I dabble in fornication. I lie a little bit. Oh, well, you know, everybody does it. What does the Bible say? There's several places in the New Testament that give us little lists. People who are characterized by the following things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The liar, the adulterer, the blasphemer, goes on and on and on. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds like works-oriented salvation. No, it's talking about evidence. If you're truly converted, there will be evidence of true conversion. And when we hear that evidence, we're not meant to be, well, I got to work for my justification but we should be seeking to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because true faith will produce spiritual fruit. And again, there's only two camps. There's no neutral territory. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. By the way, what's the default? What's the default? We all start off over here, child of the devil, separated from God. And God, by his grace, reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ, and he transforms us. Here's 
the next and final area of transformation. We love others. Love, we know, is the center of righteousness because Jesus talks about it being the greatest commandment. It's not the only commandment, but it's the greatest commandment. It's the center. It's the motivator for what we do, loving God and loving other people. We used to say in the early days of our church, passion for God, compassion for people. This is central to who we are. So if you think of love, you have a mind. Right now you're thinking. Y'all thinking? Nobody's sleeping. You're thinking. And in your mind, you're thinking at times about yourself. And then you have actions. There's things you do and say. And a lot of the times our actions are spent on ourselves. And then we have resources. We have the resource of time, which is slipping away. We have money, which can grow or fade. So often in life, our time, our mind, our resources is turned, look at me, turned inward. And we use all of those things for the benefit of me, myself, and I. Is that not true? It's true of all of us. We're we're self-centered. You're this tall. Give me that toy. I want more. I remember when our you know, oldest son, who's now married and lives out of town, I think it was second Christmas. First Christmas, he had no idea what was going on. Second Christmas, he was kind of locking into it. So we buy him a gift or two, I don't remember. And he opens it. And then the very next thing out of his mouth is, I want more. <laughs> it's, like, it's like from the time we're young, we're self focused. And what love does is it says, no, I want you to take your mind and your talents and your treasures, and you need to put, direct them outward to others. How are your words blessing others? How's your money blessing others? How is your life blessing others? Love is not just, oh, I have a feeling of fondness for someone. It's an action. It's kindness. It's choosing not to be irritated. It's self-giving. And God is calling us to that. And this is one of the marks of true love. The thing about self-love is it backfires. But others-oriented love, which is true love, is a blessing to God. And it's a blessing to us. And it's a blessing to others. And again, this isn't a footnote. So just kind of analyze yourself right now. Do I truly love people? Or is it possible that as soon as you see people, you're automatically suspicious, you're automatically critical, you think the worst. When you talk about people after church or after school, it's it's usually the negative. We need to think about these things. Are we just in this for ourselves? Or do we truly love other people? These are some of the transformational marks that we will see in our lives as God does his gracious work. And then finally, we have the benefit of an invitation. I'm going to go back to chapter 2 now, just a couple verses that come before chapter 3, verse 1. And in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the Bible says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You know what this is? This is an invitation to confidence. 
It's an invitation to confidence, the confidence that you can have if your life is surrendered to Jesus. If you're living in obedience to God, there's a confidence that flows out of that. We don't have to be like, oh man, when he comes back, I hope he doesn't come back soon because I got a lot of stuff to deal with. And oh man, it's going to be so shameful when he kind of calls me out on stuff and I'm going to probably cower in the corner. No, we don't need to shrink back in shame if we're living lives of obedience to the Lord. And then if in chapter 5, we'll go back there. We already read verse 1. So let's look at verses 2 through 5. The Bible says, By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God, that, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So love is defined largely in terms of obedience to what God has said. And then I love this. This is so freeing. This is so freeing. If you remember nothing else, remember this, because I think it's like super, 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 super relevant. When I think of rules, thinking, eh, someone wants to take my freedom. Someone wants to confine me. Isn't that not how we think of rules? Uh, more rules, more, more laws, more someone trying to control me, you know. But this verse says, and his commandments are not burdensome. What's burdensome? Shame. That's burdensome. What is freeing? Obedience. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? You know one of the biggest lies that's ever been told? God's a cosmic killjoy. God's rules, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's trying to hurt you, constrain you, rob your passion, rob your joy. Like, wh why shouldn't you be able to like claw your way up the corporate ladder at all costs? It it'll be good for you. Why shouldn't you be able to like sleep around, sow your wild oats? Was God, God some sort of a Victorian era prude? Think about this in the garden. First lie questions God's word. Did God really say? So questioning God's word. And very quickly, once God's word is questioned, what's the next statement? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him knowing good and evil. And you know, that's they're basically saying there, God is trying to hold out on you. That's why he told you not to eat from the tree. He's trying to rob you of joy. Can you imagine that? And you know what? If you think of any sin that you commit and you trace it back, like, why, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Like, what was the thought before the thought? What was the lie before the compromise? Trace it all the way back. And at the end of the day, every lie on some level is a questioning or a downplaying or an absolute denial of the goodness of God. God's holding out on you. And so because we believe that to be true, when God says, I don't want you to do that, well, that's a burden. I want you to forgive that person. Yeah, but they didn't ask for it. They're going to get away with it. They're going to go do it to someone else. I want you to forgive them. I want you to cast off bitterness. I want you to be 
giving. Yeah, but what if there's a recession? I want you to stand up for yourself. These are the lies that park themselves in our minds because we have this idea that God's commandments are burdensome. No, God's commandments are freeing. Our mindset should be, Lord, tell me what to do. God's like, okay, I'll tell you what to do. You're like, thank you. I'm going to do it. Okay, give me some more. He gives you more. Like, okay, I'm going to do that. Give me some more. Give me some more. Give me some more because God is good. And if we do that, which the good God tells us to do, and avoid that, which the good God tells us not to do, guess what happens? God is honored. We're blessed. Other people's lives are blessed. It's good. They're not burdensome. They're freeing because we are innately stupid. We will do that which is destructive. We will buy the lie. Adam and Eve, well, we're going to buy the lie. Think about it. They had no peer pressure. There was no negative stuff on the internet. They had no crappy preaching to deal with. None of that. But they still bought the lie. How many more hangups do we have? Obstacles do we have? to obedience. But you know what? We also have a redemptive historical advantage because we have thousands of years of church history to look back on. We have a completed word of God. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit and we have one another. So we're well-resourced actually to obey God. But imagine if more of us adopted this mindset, I think we'd see a revival among God's people. Lord, tell me what to do. I want you to boss me around. I want to obey you. Please boss me around. I need it. Church, you know what? At the end of the day, look at the text. The children of God win. I love the words overcome, victory. These are words that are part of our vocabulary, notably in our prayers, in our preaching, in our worship music, because they're true. At the end of the day, We win. And the reason why we win is because Jesus has already won. I didn't invent steel, but I benefit from it. I didn't invent textiles or plumbing or the internet or maps, but I benefit from those things. And Jesus has accomplished things for us that we can benefit from as well. And so if you're a child of God, you're one of his children, take these words to heart. Allow them to affect your worship, your sanctification, and your interaction with one another. And you'll be blessed and God will be very much honored.